This episode of Inside Acting is brought to you in part by Rehearsal 2, the app for actors. Want to learn your lines fast? Be off book for auditions? Explore your characters and make stronger choices? There's an app for that. Rehearsal 2. Download it now at rehearsaltheapp.com slash download. That's rehearsaltheapp.com slash download. Hello and welcome to episode 152 of Inside Acting. My name is Trevor Algott and on the show we interview actors, writers, filmmakers, casting directors, producers, agents, managers, aerialists, personal finance and fitness gurus, voiceover artists, anybody at all involved in any way, shape or form with the entertainment industry. We find out what makes them tick, how they got to where they are, what they're, they've got going on, what's next, and then we package those interviews up into this podcast Stick it out there on the worldwide interwebs every week for your listening pleasure. And on this episode, we have part one of my chat with filmmaker Josh Caldwell. I'll tell you a little bit about how he and I connected, but uh, really good stuff. This is a three-part series coming at you over the next few weeks. I really enjoyed sitting down with Josh. I'm a huge fan of his work, and I think that uh, especially the DIY contingent among us will really dig this, uh, this interview series. So stick around for that. So hey y'all, welcome to episode 152. This is Trev coming at you with another somewhat abbreviated edition of the show. We're not going to tackle any sort of big listener questions or voicemails on this episode, but hopefully they will all return next week. Uh, I have a few things I wanted to kind of briefly chat about before we roll into part one of my chat with Josh, and uh, they are, in no particular order, number one, paying off the last of my medical debt. I can't tell you how freeing it is to know that that's, uh, that that's gone. I'll t- talk more about that in a second. Uh, number two, my experience um, shooting a, a small role on a feature film set the, the other day called uh, The Midnight Man, which you may... Uh, long-time listeners may know, sounds a little bit similar to Midnight Monster. And then thirdly, uh, a sort of shift I had in my vision that I wanted to share that uh, I, I'm curious to hear if anybody else... Uh, well, I'm just curious to hear what you guys think of it. So let's start with the first thing, paying off my medical debt. So I've been working my ass off these past couple weeks and months and really making an effort to live uh, below or beneath my means, as it were, or beneath uh, basically spend less than I earn. And a, a listener wrote in a little while ago with uh, a pick of the week called YNAB, uh, which stands for You Need a Budget. And it's a piece of software that's about 60 or 70 bucks that I did not purchase. I downloaded the trial version. But between that software and the kind of methodology that they lay out there, as well as the Mr. Money Mustache blog I've been talking about, I really kind of just had a little bit of an aha moment. And I realized that the only way I was going to be able to pay off my medical debt and start making a dent in my credit cards because I have credit card debt, like mostly every other American that I want to get rid of, uh, was just to live beneath my means. And so uh, I tried a few things out. I started tracking things meticulously. 
and I basically realized that it would take me until the beginning of October to pay off the uh, the remainder of my medical debt if I implemented this system uh, that I had implemented, which was a certain amount of money going towards that that medical debt every uh, every every couple days of the week. And then I had milestone check-ins in my calendar and all this cool stuff. Anyway, long story short, uh, I was able to really aggressively pay it down. I put a little chart up in my in my room that I look at every time I sit in my desk so I could see it, uh, it you know the amount decreasing. I would just update that every Sunday. And uh, anyway, I settled with the collectors uh, today. They basically said, if you pay the whole thing in full right now, we'll give you a, a crazy discount on, the, on the, the balance. And so they did, and I did, and I am medical debt-free, and I could not be a happier camper right now. And I just wanted to share that because I think it makes a big difference in the artistic journey uh, what uh, the artist's relationship to money is and what the money situation is like and how important it is to create a powerful money mindset and a, a situation uh, such that money is not an issue. It becomes an asset and a tool rather than an obstacle. So, um, yeah, was stoked about that. Number two, my experience in the Midnight Man set. So I, I shared a few episodes ago that uh, the filmmakers from The Midnight Monster, which was a short film I did a little while ago, uh, they're going to be guests on, the, on an upcoming episode at some point, too. They are fantastic people that I think will be able to share a lot of knowledge with us. But uh, they invited me back to the feature film version, which they got financing for, and uh, they wrote a, a small role for me. There's actually more to it than just that. There's there's a couple inside jokes in the film that uh, I can share on an upcoming episode sometime when we have a little more time. But uh, it was really cool, man. It was a legit set. They got some serious financing. There was, uh, you know, it was legit. It was just great. And it was a 4 p.m. to 4 a.m. shoot. And it was a long day. And there were a lot of people, not a lot, there, there were a handful of people that were complaining about how late it was and how tired they were. And I, I was just thinking to myself, like, I I find reasons to complain when I'm not on set. I am not going to find a reason to complain while I am on set. And I uh, had a great time and got a really nice note from uh, David and Brina, who were the director and co-writer and producers, um, about uh, about what it was like to, to be on a set uh, together again. They, they sent me a really, really, really nice note. Um, so that was awesome. can talk more about that on an upcoming episode, too, especially as the film gets closer to release and as we get closer to interviewing them. So that was number two. And then the third thing that I wanted to share briefly before we roll into this interview was a, a vision shift that I had. I was talking to a friend this week and I, I was saying um, how like she's known this about me for a long time too, that I'm not the kind of person I think that's ever really going to be totally satisfied uh, just speaking other people's words and just being an actor, just being a kind of cog in the machine I think where my fullest satisfaction is going to come from, and I, I've alluded to this on the last episode, is going to come from making my own stuff, being a, a writer and having a hand in the creative process behind the scenes, having a hand in the production, um, having a hand in how the overall story and message is delivered. And I, I, I just kind of realized that, A, I, I, don't, I don't enjoy auditioning. I, I don't think any of us do. And I, maybe you guys can relate. Sometimes when you get an audition, it's kind of like, Ugh, like, man, I was going to do this tomorrow and now I got to go do that. And I got to drive here. And well, that kind of puts a, you know, a cramp in my day. And I know that's not a good way to look at it, but I, I'm going to be human here and just acknowledge that I have that experience quite a, quite a bit. And I just realized there's a way out. I look at people like Britt Marling, who's one of my absolute 
favorite uh, actor, kind of filmmaker, creator, writer people, people like Ed Burns, people who have created their career on their own terms by just teaching themselves to write, teaching themselves to make films, doing it really well, and then having a world of opportunities open up to them because of that. And I look at Britt Marlin, and I, I kind of don't think that she does a lot of auditioning these days. I, I kind of feel like she's probably offered a lot of roles. And it's not that I'm trying to create a, a future for myself where I'm not auditioning ever, because I know that's not realistic. But I, I'd like my work to kind of speak for itself. And I'd like people to see my work before just kind of, you know, sending out a, a, a kind of a blind call for actors of my type, as it were. Does that, does that make sense? So anyway, I, had a, I just had this epiphany where I was like, you know what? It all depends on where I put my energy and I love my agent and I love every moment I have to, uh, you know, show my work and, and read other people's words and whatnot. But like Britt Marling, uh, I find myself kind of not entirely satisfied, um, doing roles that other people have written, uh, that, that fit a sort of certain archetype. And I don't know, I'm starting to sound whiny here and I'm not communicating the full message properly, but maybe some of you can kind of see what I'm getting at here. So anyway, the, the vision shift was, I only have a limited amount of energy, a limited amount of kind of attention units, as it were, uh, throughout the day, a limited amount of willpower. Where can I put this stuff to get the most leverage? And immediately my gut said, you need to create a secure money situation for yourself, doing something you enjoy that's not going to get in the way. And you need to create your own work. So I talked about this last episode, but, uh, you know, teaching myself to write and going for the feature, fuck it, why not? And then also really just buckling down and making um, my kind of side hustle as a Beachbody coach my main focus. I've been plugging into a lot of training with that. I really, really cannot stress how much joy I get out of supporting people in uh, tackling their health and fitness and really taking themselves on and transforming not only their relationships to their body and to their the food they eat, but to their life in general. I think, uh, you know, our, as it's been said uh, by many a successful person, our outer world is a reflection of our inner world. And I find it extremely gratifying to empower people uh, to take themselves on rather than accepting an hourly fee to train somebody that doesn't appeal to me, but helping them, supporting them with the tools and, and supporting them in developing uh, that, that sort of kind of self-reliance and finding out what works for them. And, and just kind of like, I kind of imagine like, you know, a little, little bird that I just kind of open my hands and it just kind of flies away. And I smile sadly as it soars off into the, the great blue beyond. I, I don't know. I, I realized that those were, those were my two big focuses. And the whole point of this story God, I can talk. The whole point of this story was that when I said those things out loud, my heart started beating faster and I just felt my entire body fill with this excitement. And I thought that is a life that I can get really excited about. And I don't know if my, my end goal is to be a series regular. I wouldn't turn it down for sure, but um, I don't feel um, totally comfortable putting all my eggs in that basket or, or directing all my energies towards that one pursuit. I'd much rather live a life where I'm in control, where I can create the results. And, and yes, I know I could create the, the series regular results, but it's, it's a more roundabout way that requires a little bit of luck and it requires a little bit of, uh, you know, tricky kind of navigation of political situations and whatnot. And I'd much rather be somebody who creates their own roles, creates their own work. So anyway, that is sort of my vision shift. It doesn't sound as 
as dramatic as I was kind of hoping it would sound, but um, maybe that's because I just talked it to death. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, that's it, guys. Uh, all right. So uh, on that note, let's jump into part one with uh, filmmaker Josh Caldwell. Lots of neat little stuff about the filmmaking process that uh, I know many of us uh, listening will absorb and, and really have fun putting into play. And there's two more parts coming after this one. So enjoy part one, guys, and I'll catch you on the other side. Hey everybody, this is Trev, and I'm sitting across from filmmaker Josh Caldwell, and I'm really excited to be sitting down with Josh for a couple of reasons. Um, but with the cool thing about how we kind of connected was was why I think uh, everybody should have some sort of blog or podcast or something like that. Essentially, I tweeted something from our Inside Acting account uh, that, that Josh wrote on No Film School about how he created his most recent film, which is called Layover, for only like six grand. And it looks great, and he had some really kind of interesting things to say about upping the kind of production value without sinking a lot of money into into the film and i thought it'd be great so i tweeted it and uh and and just thought it was great and josh actually contacted me and said said hey thanks for the the tweet you know i'd love to talk about it more if you want and i was like awesome like i i didn't think to reach out to him first so i'm i'm so glad josh that you reached out to us and i'm so glad to be sitting down with you here so welcome yeah thank you thank you excited to be here i, I have to admit i didn't I wasn't really aware of the depth of how much work you've done uh, until really a few hours ago. Right. I mean, I saw the trailer for Layover. I read the article that you wrote on the film school. I thought it was great. And I knew kind of, I just, just did a little kind of research on the internet and saw kind of your blog and, and you've got a podcast as well. The blog is uh, Hollywood Bound and Down and it's about kind of making things work in the film industry from the perspective of somebody, as you say, who's still trying to break in. Yeah. Um, and I was just saying to Josh before we started recording how funny that is because from my perspective, he's extremely accomplished. I mean, you won an MTV movie Mo- award movie in award, 2006. Yeah, you've yeah got, Golden Popcorn. Yeah, they got the Golden golden Popcorn thing. I mean, I saw uh, you've got a long list, long list of credits on IMDb as writer, producer, and director. You've worked with some pretty recognizable names. I mean, people, yeah. the the chick from One Tree Hill. Michaela McManus, who was mm-hmm. in One Tree Hill. She actually got, One Tree Hill came about because of the film that uh, I won the movie award for. No way. Yeah, so I knew about her. That? Yeah, I knew her in college, actually. Where she ended up going as an actress was directly related to the success of The Beautiful Lie. That is cool. Award. Yeah. That is really cool. Do yeah. you ever call her and be like, where's my money? Uh, yeah. I'm like, <laughs> keep me in mind. No, I mean, and yeah. she's, well, she's a great friend. She, um, you know, she got married to a really great guy, um, who's a writer on, um, Sons of Anarchy now. And it's oh, cool. crazy even to see uh, his name's Mike Daniels and even to see his trajectory, which he came out to Hollywood and just started pounding the pavement and writing, writing, writing. And when I met him, when she met him, he was a writer on one tree hill and then mm-hmm. he eventually he um he wrote on another show uh he was on pan am i think after one tree hill cool. and then eventually went to sons of anarchy which is like one completely different yeah but two yeah. To, it's been fun to know him as somebody that's further along in his career than i am and has met with really great success that's yeah, really that's cool that's really cool do you ever find yourself comparing yourself and getting frustrated about that kind of thing you know uh yeah i don't think you, it's hard to not 
help doing that. You know, yeah. I think that especially early on, I'd see people that would get, you know, these guys who would get features in uh, like Esquire, you know, or, or something like that and just be like, why are these guys getting – it's not a zero-sum game. You know, in terms of like, if they're getting something, you're not getting something, you know. Mm-hmm. But I think, too, what ended up happening for me was I had to sort of sit back and realize that, you know, I, in fact, I think I, it was, I read some book about directors' first features, and what it sort of highlighted for me was the fact that the, there were, of the 20 directors in there, there were 20 different paths to mm. success. And that coupled with another thing that I read, which was saying essentially that, I don't know if it was in regards to filmmaking, but it had to do with essentially that you're we're all on our own timeline in terms of success and in terms of meeting that success. And, you know, for you, it might not be until you're 35 or 40, you know, but that's sort of when it should happen for you, you know, and yeah. the stuff that leads up to that ends up like leading to it and, and creating that opportunity. And for other people, it's when they're, you know, 17. Mm-hmm. And and they get to start young, and so that's it's kind of allowed me to go. Okay, how do I stop stop focusing on everything around me, and how do I just start focusing on what I want to do and, and the type of career that I want to create? And then that then then you start channeling your energy into that kind of stuff as opposed to worrying about what everyone what everyone else yeah. is doing. That said, it's you know it's hard not to go like God. I mean, you're older than Josh Trank, and he's directing you know. Fantastic Four and a Star Wars movie and be like, ah, dang it. Yeah, yeah. I play but, that game all the time. Yeah, but I mean I think that like it's it's it ends up being wasted energy, you yeah. know, and, and obviously like those guys have done something that have gotten them them to that place and so good for them, you know. Yeah. And now it's about okay, how do I how do I do that for me? Yeah, I've read uh, I've read some Greek philosopher said something along the lines of I don't know what the surest path to happiness unhappiness is, but I'm pretty sure it has to do with comparing yourself to other people or yeah. something along those lines. Exactly. And I love just just knowing that you know it's going to happen for me at some point. Right. Maybe it's not when I'm 17. Maybe it's when I'm 50. You know, yeah. there are a lot of actors and filmmakers and directors and writers, like all these people. There are some people that. In fact, I'd say probably most bloom in their in in midlife, basically. Yeah. And yeah. it's a really you know it's a lesson that everyone ha- kind of has to learn, you know, because this is such just such a difficult industry in every facet and every role, unless you want to be like a PA, you know. Even then, it's difficult. <laughs> right. But you know, it was one thing that kind of came out of winning the MTV Movie Award, um, which was something I learned, which. You know, I was 23, right out of college. Literally, a couple days after I graduated from college, I flew down to L.A. You know, to win the award, and um, it had been all of the nominees had been printed in Variety in Hollywood Reporter, and so I started getting a few calls from managers and things like that. And I was like, "Yes, okay, this is great. Like, hopefully, I win, and that's going to be it for me." You know, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Uh, won the award, went really great, and then all the press releases came out, and they didn't list my award. And then I realized that nobody wa- nobody in the industry watched the MTV Movie Awards, you know, because the thing is, is not to knock the MTV Movie Awards, but whether whether somebody wins an MTV Movie Award or not tends to not really affect their career, you know. But in my category, which was ran for three years and was called the best film on campus category, best film on campus, it does, and it can greatly impact somebody's career and they Mm. never fully took advantage of it in fact i was only one of the i was the only one of the three years that did it that actually got to go up on stage get the award 
and give a speech that was included in the broadcast. You know, the next two years, the second year, it was going to be, and then it was cut for time. And then the third year, it was uh, – I don't even think it was made part of the show. That said, though, the guy that run – great guy named Josh Greenbaum who won the second year um, ended up going on and he created – he's done a bunch of stuff lately. His biggest thing was he did a, um, a documentary called The Short Game. Which mm. um, about these young golfers, you know, that premiered on Netflix. He did another web series digital show on Hulu called Behind the Mask. I think I might have that title wrong, but but is all about um, the college. Um, uh, what are the mascots? Like the guys behind the college oh, mascots. Cool. That's cool. And, I always and, wondered and, about this. And he's guys. gotten like tons of press for it. Like I think they won an Emmy. Like it's done really wow. really well, and he's doing really really well. So maybe you know it would have been better if I hadn't. <laughs> been able to give a speech. I got a speech and he got, you know, a TV show. But I think, you know, but well, anyway, as a result of that, you know, it was kind of one of those things where what I sort of, I had those unrealistic ideas that, oh, somebody's going to come and want to make a feature with me at 23 and they're going to give me a ton of money and my career is going to take off. I'm going to get an agent. I'm going to get a manager. I'm going to get, you know, everything that I need to go make this happen. And when none of that happened, you know, I was definitely like a little bitter about it for a while. Mm. Um, you know, it was really hard and it wasn't so much that, you know, and even now it's not so much, I, I know that sort of what I thought might happen was unrealistic, but there's still part of me that goes, I just thought a little something more would happen, you know? So I did mm. get a manager, you know, and, and out of it and did really well, but I always like, God, I, I'm just surprised that something a little bit more didn't come, come from that, but it was a really great lesson that I learned, got to learn very young, which was nobody's going to hand anything to you in this business. Mm-hmm. And so if you're going to sit back and think that that's going to happen, even after you might have done one thing, until, you're, until your movies have generated you know, a lot of money at the box office and or won you an Oscar, you're always going to be fighting. You know, for what yeah. you want to do, yeah. and so it was a really, really great lesson early on. And I had to. It took me a couple of years to sort of swallow it and accept it. But once I did, I then started going, okay, you know, forget that. Let me put the award under my bed for a while, right. <laughs> and yeah. uh, and really go and try and make things happen for myself, as opposed to thinking that it might happen right. as a yeah. result. And the fact is, it's it's been tough because I found that on a lot of projects that have been really successful, like what I sort of thought might come of them, hasn't come of them. And on the ones where I didn't think much would come, a lot has come. Like it's been really weird and 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 unique and and interesting to sort of. You kind of have to just really create good work, and hopefully it connects with people. And if it doesn't, it doesn't. You know, there's, yeah. there's not a whole lot you can really do about it unless you've got you know a studio and fifty million dollars worth of marketing behind you. Yeah, I was gonna say. I mean, it, it, it's very clear to me that you're a doer. You know, that you're just like I'm just gonna focus on the work. I'm just gonna do the work do really good work and let that kind of speak for itself and trust that that will eventually get me where I want to go. Yeah. I mean, I think that the thing that I've always sort of um, kept hold of with any of the projects that I work on is that kind of what you were saying, which was the second I have something break or something, you know, get me some publicity, people can go back and go, oh, wait, wow, this guy's been doing some good work for a long time. Why haven't I heard about dig? Why haven't I heard about resignation or, or anything like that? But it's all there for people to then go back and see and go, you know, Oh, okay. This guy isn't just somebody who got lucky. 
you know, right, or, right. or is an overnight type of thing or, which I'm definitely not yet. <laughs> yet. <laughs> yet. Well, I'm definitely not like suddenly this massively successful. Got about filmmaker. three more years. Yeah. Right? But, yeah. but the ability to go and say at the very least, that's the thing. That's what's really great about this work. That's what's really great about doing what we do, which is that it doesn't die. It never dies. Even scripts that don't sell never die. You know, I mean, the, you know, Judd Apatow spent years trying to sell scripts and was very unsuccessful. And the next thing, you know, once he did 40 year old virgin or maybe something before that, but I think 40 year old virgin launched him. Once he did that, everyone started going, well, do you have, and he started giving them these scripts that he had already written and they had already passed on, you wow. know, and, How about that? and you hear stories of, cause my buddy knows, is knows the people in that group and you hear stories about him going like, you know, uh, uh, so an exec that had passed cause he'd already read it. And he was like, Oh, I didn't read it. My assistant probably read it. Like send it to me again, you know? Wow, and so yeah. that, that was always one of the things that I always sort of relied on in terms of the material that you're, you're developing is that it never really goes away. Hmm. Um, and it's always available for other, for people to see. And even if it hasn't been seen to the degree that you want it to, once you made it, you don't know what that one thing, like, you know, a podcast, like I was always, when I was working on my stuff, Funny part is the one I launched with has been the most popular, which was the interview I did with Missy Peregrine. Oh, cool. Um, yeah. I should have probably done that as number 20 because <laughs> then that would have helped everybody go, oh, wow, he's got 19 other episodes. Let me dig into the archives. Yeah, let me yeah. dig into the archives. And so it's that kind of thing, which is um, important. And it means it means your work is never it, – it means your work always has value and mm-hmm. always has the potential because, you know, I look at – it's funny because the um, – you know, some of the – opportunities i'm getting now are result of layovers layover becoming known Hmm. but some people go and say you know i I actually like dig better than layover or i see and dig sort of my sensibilities of filmmaker more than i do in layover and yet it was layover that that got them interested yeah to see dig and so it's those kind of things where you just never know like there there's and that's what's always been really important to me in terms of how i'm approaching things which I'm, i'm i'm approaching things as a career as opposed to as a sort of singular piece of work, right. you know? So right. layover is a really great example, which, you know, my producer and I would talk about this and we'd say that layover is not the story. You know, the story is the two other films that make up the trilogy that we're planning to do. And if we can do those within the course of two years for X amount of dollars, then suddenly that becomes the story. I got to that point of saying, you know, what I really don't want to do is spend, you know, a year more trying to craft a script that would attract talent and then spend another four to four years, three or four years trying to track down financing for X millions of dollars, you know, even $4 million. Um, when I haven't done a feature before trying to get the talent attached then having them drop out and go and find the next piece of talent and, and then wind up like five years later, having made one film that may or may not do well and may or may not sell. Right. You know, I'd rather in that time be making 10 films. How long did it take you to write the script for Layover from start to finish? You know, it was one of those things that was in my head for a while. I'd say like, it could have been as much as a year. I don't really remember. But it was was one of those ideas that was just, oh, what if there was, you know, what about doing a movie about a a girl that's stuck on a layover in Los Angeles? Like, that might be, you know, because I was watching like a lot of Bourdain and, you know, Mm -hmm. he had that show called The Layover, which is obviously unrelated and I had actually forgotten about I didn't realize the title was the same. Um, but I was like, that's just, it's really interesting that you're sort of a, a, a somebody stuck in a unique, you know, in a, in a foreign city for, you know, a very contained period of time. Yeah. And then, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, yeah, but just to finish. So it was in my head for a while as that. And, you know, I was like, well, should it be a thriller? Should it be like, 
a drama? Like, what should it be? And and then once I s- sort of landed on the idea of what Layover ended up becoming, it was, I don't know, it was like a month or two probably of writing. Like, a lot of, like, just sort of doodle writing, you know, just kind of jotting notes down and thoughts and ideas. And then the script itself was, once I committed to writing it, the script itself, the first draft probably only took me a week. Wow. It was written very quickly because it was wow. it was one very scary a script that was very scary to jump into. I actually did not want to write it because the movie itself is very episodic. And the problem with episodic is that your options are kind of endless. Mm. You know, like if you're writing a thriller, you have a very strict structure, you know, you're mm-hmm. trying to follow. But with yeah. episodic, it's just sort of like event to event and, not, and, and situation to situation. And you're kind of like, well, why this versus this? And, right, right. And yeah. it, it's also one of those that is difficult to plan out totally, like to know exactly what's going to happen before you're writing. So I was hoping somebody else would write it, uh, whether it be my writing partner or there was another, another writer that I was talking to. And um, I realized through talking to them that it wasn't what I was trying to do. They weren't quite getting, you know, like doing long dialogue scenes and and sort of the where I how I saw this started to see this character and how it started to, the character started to formulate in my in my head. And I said, you know what? Like, why don't I just start writing? And even if I tap out at forty pages, we'll be able to. You guys will be able to take up to jump in and the, pull the jump slack, in and yeah. see. But you'll be able to see what I'm going for. Yeah. And then, like, a week later, I'd written the whole thing. <laughs> like, just, just kidding. Sorry. Just kidding. But read it. Tell me what it. you think. Yeah. But tell me what you yeah. think. And, yeah. and then it turned into and that kind of thing. So it, was, it ended up being very fast. And we were planning to shoot in the spring. And we shot, like, a couple months later. That's awesome. And I, I, I do want to talk about the trilogy because I think that's really intriguing what you're doing there uh, and the, the kind of methodology behind it from a business perspective as well as an artistic perspective. I want to talk about where you grew up. And I want to talk about Dig because that's really intriguing to me as well, the whole story behind that, uh, or rather the, the storyline behind that. But while we're on the topic of layover, what really intrigued me the most about your article that I read on No Film School was how you just thought, how can I make this story kind of stand out? Correct me if I'm kind of paraphrasing this incorrectly or inaccurately, but you basically thought, what if the characters or most of the movie was done in French? Correct. Um, because that kind of adds a, a level of value or a level of production value or perceived value that, that kind of ups things a little bit. So a $6,000 film all of a sudden starts to look like a fifty or $100,000 film simply because you've got subtitles for right. most of the film. <laughs> right. And, uh, and, and you also shot on DSLR. I mean, you shot yep. on the Canon, was it 5D the or 5D. 70? And uh, on your blog, you've written extensively about about how you feel about DSLR versus RED because so many people get caught up in the camera kind of conversation. I think it's so inconsequential. It's like, does it look good? Yes. Let's go. Yeah. Um, But let's talk about the decision to put this in French when you don't even speak French. Right. I don't speak French. Um, it's, well, it's, it's, it's a couple things in terms of like what you alluded to, which is that, um, you know, I knew I was making a very, very low budget movie. Um, six, obviously six grand, six or so? grand, was six the, grand. Was the and, total finishing costs. I mean, that was, um, that was everything. Yeah. And Crazy. so exactly. I mean, it was obviously there's a lot of favors, but also we paid people. I mean, we, you know, we paid people appropriately and we paid the actors and we paid SAG rates. And so it was a union, union, was a, union SAG. Like, but, awesome. but the thing, you know, part of how we were able to do that was the crew. I mean, I operated the camera. We had a DP who helped with lighting. My buddy, who is Travis, who my writing partner, also my producing partner, 
and and uh, another guy named Bertel who helped produce it. They like ran sound, and that was it. That was our that was our crew. I like love it. it was very you know. And w- on a couple days when we had like the party scene and stuff, we brought in an extra couple people as on a volunteer basis. But they were there for a couple hours, and you know that was right. it. And so it wasn't like shooting for three weeks, paying the crew nothing. You know, we, we it was very guerrilla style, but we were able to pull that off because of our abilities and our talent. But as a result, it just didn't cost anything, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, but, yeah, so I knew I was – and really it started out from saying, can I make it – how little can I make it for? Can I make it for nothing? And then we got a uh, – we got an investment um, through a family member that basically gave us five grand. We were like, okay, five grand. That's the budget. Sweet. And then we then we ended up going a little over and, and obviously we had some costs in post. But, um, yeah, it was sort of like, oh, okay, well, then that becomes the budget. That's what we have. So let's just what, – what can we get away with? Um and so we, you know, knowing that, uh, it, it really did come from a narrative place of saying, wouldn't it be interesting to do a foreign film that's set in Los Angeles hmm. and sort of see the city from a very different perspective? And and also just the idea of it being sort of this fish out of, fish out of water, you know, the story of a girl from New York who's stuck in L.A. Like, you can kind of figure out L.A. if you speak English. It just didn't seem as quite as interesting. You know, as a place to start. And so, honestly, the French was a result of me knowing two actresses that I knew spoke French because I had worked with them in the past um, doing something in a different language in French. And I was like, well, what if it's French? And, of course, there's the whole, like, French New Wave influence and Mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff. But but it was really, like, I think if they had spoken Italian, I probably would have just done (laughs) Italian. Italian. It wouldn't have really mattered. But, yeah, and then at the end of the day, the result, though, is that... You know, in another Earth, the sort of you know, you can. It's not. I guess you can call that a high concept film, but it's not really a high concept film. Like it's a very grounded drama. Yeah. Their special sauce, if you want to call it that, is the fact that they have a uh, you know a digital effect of an Earth in, in the, the sky. sky. Yeah. That's their that's their French in our version. Right. And so it didn't probably didn't cost them anything to do that. You yeah. know, they probably. Yeah. We're able to get a photo from NASA and yeah, it's kind of <laughs> and did it themselves. Do it you know, after effects or something. Yeah, like and it looks great. But suddenly, that just opens the world in such a bigger way than you sort of thought. And so, you know, I also thought that um, it's exactly sort of what ended up happening right here with us, which is, oh, you made a movie in French. Do you speak French? No. Well, why'd you make? Why'd you decide to do it in French? And then suddenly, we're talking about the movie as opposed to I love that, it. that was really good. Like, I liked it. Right. And you're done. And so it's a little bit of that, which is, you know, it's something that that people gravitate towards because it's so different. Like, you don't see that happening. And I just found it interesting to say that, you know, I I thought that, you know, dialogue tends to be over um, thought and over focused on as a, uh, when you're directing and whether they're saying words correctly and all that stuff. And so I just got to avoid all that. You know, I got to let somebody else, Carl, who plays the motorcyclist in it is the only Parisian in the film. Hmm. So he did the translating. He was on set to listen to the French and make sure it worked and it made sense. And I got to just focus on whether the emotions were coming through and whether the performance wow. was coming through. And so, so it was really freeing. So as you're filming, you're like, I have, I think they're talking well, about it gets what to, we yeah, talked Yeah, I mean, about, it gets but... to a point where we would do rehearsals. Okay. We shot on weekends, so we would do rehearsals on like the Tuesday before we'd shoot, which gave the actors, cause they, because they weren't like, not that they're not native French, but they didn't. French wasn't their first language. Essentially, mm-hmm. um, it gave them time to just prepare the scenes that needed to be prepared. Because even though they speak French and could carry on a conversation, acting 
in another language becomes a whole different thing. Right. As I learned, um, I didn't really sort of know that because I'd done shorter stuff and it seemed to not be a problem. Right. Um, right. And, uh, and so we'd rehearse. And so I would have an idea and I have my English script and I have the French version and I'd have an idea on where we were within the scene and what, I, I didn't know exactly what they were saying, but I knew that some French phrases would stick out to me. I go, oh, that's when they're talking about this. So I know sort of within the scene where they were, where they were hitting, and I would sort of know whether they were hitting the right emotions at the right time, um, mostly just through sort of the feeling and the performance. So I'd get to a point where I wouldn't be able to tell you, oh, this line means this, but that I knew within the structure of that scene where they were in terms of what they were talking about and where they should be right. emotive-wise. So it was um, kind of like you wrote the dialogue, but you basically said, here's the, the gist of the scene. We start here, we hit these beats, and we end here. Run with it? Is that no, it was, it was, it was, um, there was, it wasn't any improvisation. Oh, okay. Um, so it was pretty scripted still. Pretty scripted, and really only because, it's not because I'm not a fan of it, it's really only because they weren't comfortable or in a place to improv gotcha. in, in French. Carl, who played the motorcyclist, probably could have. And he might have. I'm not really sure. Um, but <laughs> to this day. Um, but uh, they weren't. And so it ended up just being scripted by the, the fact that they just had to really, you know, get the lines down and make sure they knew what they needed to say in French as opposed to worrying about anything else. Wow. But normally okay. I'm not that particular about it as wow. long as what they're saying makes sense and works within the scene. That is cool. And then you cut it yourself or did you have a, an editor? Uh, and another with? editor, Will Torbett, I, which was the first time I worked with. Um, with somebody else cutting, I did end up coming in and, and doing a pass as an editor um, and doing quite a bit of work on it. But Will really did a lot of the early stuff and really started shaping it and, and getting it together, which was really nice because one, I didn't quite have the time, and two, I've been tr- uh, most of the other stuff, dig and everything else that I've done, I have edited myself, mm-hmm. um, and I was really looking for a chance for somebody else. And Will had worked for me as a assistant editor for a long time and did a lot of really great work for me. And I said, "Hey, take Here you it." Go. There you right, go. Right. Do it. That is cool. So how long was the whole process from... Well, actually, before we even get there, you said you would rehearse on the Tuesday before you would shoot on the weekends. Yeah. So how many weekends did you end up shooting? We shot five weekends. So it was a total of about 11, 12 days. You shot a feature in 12, basically yeah. 12 in, days. In all of those days, except one, were um, under eight hours. Wow. Because basically, one, we were shooting nights, so you know we all hit 4 a.m. and... Yeah, <laughs> pretty pretty spent. But the other reason is because we'd show up to most of our locations and essentially have them pre-lit or already lit because we were basically stealing it, there wasn't a whole lot to do. We kind of were able to show up, turn on the camera, run through the blocking, and then just go and just, and go, just start yeah. doing it. So there wasn't a whole lot of downtime. And so all the stuff that usually comes with filmmaking where in between takes you got makeup running in and you got somebody checking lights, you got somebody changing the camera and you got somebody checking it and all the stuff that starts to impact your ability to keep yeah. a momentum and move, none of that was there because it was me holding a naked 5D and um, you know china balls or practical bulbs in, in the lamps and the actors and that was really it i love that yeah. i think that's the future of filmmaking i really do i mean you still you're always gonna have the big budget studio things with the big trucks and all that stuff but i feel like more and more we're gonna see really solid films coming out of four person crews three person yeah. crews with a couple actors somewhere and and that'll be kind of the new normal yeah i mean i think that there's there's certain films it works for and certain films it doesn't 
in this other feature I'm working on, which is going to have a much greater budget, like, you know, we're talking about, do we shoot on the Alexa? Do we shoot on a red or whatever? And I'm like, yeah, but I'm, what I'm, my instructions to the camera crew is going to be like, this thing has to be as stripped down as possible. Like Mm. this thing has to be as minimal and small and movable and mobile as we can get it because, you know, we'll get to it. But with dig dig, I shot on red. Um, on the MX and we had two reds and we had like these massive lenses like a 25 to 250 or something like that Jeez. and some really fantastic operators but it was a it's a it was a very very heavy camera you know um, and it was one of those things that was hard to really just very quickly switch and move around and move from here to there and you know I like to be really flexible and mobile and and sort of allow the actors to dictate where the camera is going to end up being um, you know and, and letting the operators try and get in sync with what's going on oh, that's and, then, great. and then finding it as opposed to being like this is it and sometimes you right. do that depends on what it's, what you're shooting but yeah. yeah it's about really looking at oh how do you you know and now with cameras like the C300 you know, and the red epics and the new Alexa that just came out, which is the more ENG style, uh, Alexa, uh, that's smaller and more compact. Like you get, you're able to see your, I'm going like, okay, those things are great. Like I, I see where I can sort of utilize those in a much smaller way. And, you know, really the 5d came out of the fact that we just like, I wanted so I needed to be able to shoot something with that got really great. IS, you know, it could go really high with the ISO and we weren't having to worry about bringing in a ton of lighting. Right, right. And you've said you've said on your blog that you kind of see the DSLR movement as kind of the 16 millimeter equivalent, and you see like things like the Red and the Alexa and the, and the C300 is kind of the 35 millimeter movement. Yeah, I'm not necessarily talking in terms of resolution, but I sort of am. I think that you know, when you look at you look at or you look at cameras like the Alexa and the Reds, and, and you know, they're they're great cameras, and they can certainly like you can certainly go up on the ISO and stuff like that. But you know, they they tend to come with a lot of requirements in terms of like DIT, in terms of like lenses. I mean, yeah, you can use Canon lenses on a red, but do you really want to? You know, um, yeah. and, and, you know, and support systems and crew and lighting requirements and all this and power and all this stuff that just comes with them in order to get the images that they get. Um, and that's a lot like 35. You can certainly just shoot 35 raw out in the middle of the day and it will probably look great. But for the most part, you kind of want to support it with, you know, like helping it look really good. Whereas 16 became one of those things, like you look at the, the you know, the type of stuff that John Cassavetes worked on, which was one, it was cheaper, but two, he like, he put up a light, like he'd have this huge glaring light, like that's sort of like lighting the actors and he would just shoot because he could, you know, you could just be a little bit more mobile with it. You could be a little bit more, you didn't have to be as like, I don't want to say high quality, but you didn't have to worry so much about all the production that might have come with it, you know, just by the nature of, of what it is. And I, a lot of people in me, myself included, like, you know, sort of look down on DSLR. And what I mean by that is like very early on, I was not a fan of the image. I was like, I saw the image being very tinny and huh. very metallic and electronic. And I've since warmed to it simply because of the type of format it is. And you start to recognize it, that it's, it's got a lot of benefits despite yeah, that. Yeah, extremely flexible. Yeah. yeah, and so, you know, and, and and I think that, you know, I mean, you get a really great image out of them, and there's no reason why you shouldn't be utilizing them to go and make things, you know. And, yeah. and like, for example, just with layover, like, we've shot, we, sh- we got some really great images out of it using very little lighting and shooting at a very high ISO a lot of times, you know, and not having, we, we certainly get some noise, which we just filtered out later. But I just think that even on like a fifty thousand dollar budget, you might be able to afford the ability to rent a red, 
but you're going to re- very quickly start spending the money to help support, support the requirements yeah. of that red from a production yeah. standpoint. And so that's why, even though we're on the trilogy, we're going to be upping our budgets. We're we're the we're not really looking to up the camera or the process. I mean, we're yeah. considering the C100. Um, simply because it also gives you allows you to go with a very very high ISO, but um, it's dependent on how that image looks mm-hmm. in terms of whether we decide to go for it. We're totally comfortable continuing to shoot the rest of the trilogy on the five D's. All right, guys, welcome back. To the Trevor Show. Uh, I hope you dug part one with Josh. Uh, I'm really excited to bring you guys part two, parts two and three. And um, check Josh's stuff out, man. He is one hell of a filmmaker, and he's got a work ethic and a vision and a sort of certainty about where he's going that is really refreshing to be around. And I hope he is somebody that, uh, that I, well, hope. There we go. Isn't that victim language for you? I'm looking forward to to, to nurturing a uh, a relationship with him. Who knows? Maybe if I say so, right? Okay, cool. So on to uh, picks of the week. My pick of the week is very much in line with the theme of this show, from the vision shift I talked about earlier to the interview with Josh to right now. It's a book called How to Write a Movie in 21 Days by a woman named Vicki King. The book came out in the 80s. You can probably, maybe you didn't hear this in the podcast, but you can probably Google it and maybe perhaps possibly find a scanned PDF of it somewhere on Google on the first page of results, perhaps. Um, But uh, it's a really good book. It's sort of in the vein of um, Save the Cat. In fact, in Save the Cat, Blake Snyder actually references uh, this book, How to Write a Movie in 21 Days, and it's just a nice kind of self-guided paced Here's what you do on day one. Here's what you do on day two. Here's what you do on day three. And she really understands the writer's mindset and mentality and the bullshit that bubbles up in our heads when we try to tackle something big. She she kind of, she's ready for it all. And uh, I, I've really been digging the book. I've been using it to write my feature. And um, I can't believe that I have basically the entire story mapped out. Now I just have to kind of connect the dots. So it's pretty cool, man. I've never gotten further uh, on my on my projects, this project in particular, um, than I have because of this book. So link is on our website, How to Write a Movie in 21 Days by Vicki King. P.S. If you guys decide you want to pick that book up from Amazon, use the link on our website. It's an easy way to give back to the podcast. That link is an affiliate link. So when you purchase it through that, we get a, I think it's only like a few pennies, to be honest, but we get a few pennies from Amazon. So uh, thank you in advance for that. Our listener pick of the week is an app called Actor Genie. It comes to us from longtime patron Renee Michelle Brene. I hope I'm saying that right. And uh, it's a pretty cool looking app. I I think it's only for iOS, but I pulled it up on iTunes, and the description is. Actor Janie is the brainchild of the award-winning casting director Heidi Levitt. She cast the Oscar-winning film The Artist and many more award-winning films. She created Actor Janie for the aspiring actor, the professional actor, and for anyone interested in... Okay, blah, blah, blah. doesn't tell us anything. Uh, the app is on the inside track uh, on what's casting in L.A. and New York and keeps you up to date with contacts, open calls, and more. Unique content every day. From well-known celebs like Mark Ruffalo, Brett Ratner, Juliette Lewis, Kerry Washington, Wes Bentley, and many more. 
Find your dream roles, get inspired, and get your career moving with the easiest, best, and only app created and curated by Hollywood Insider. So it sounds like it's it's got a lot of up-to-date information about who's casting what, and it's actually consistently updated. And it looks like there's some good stuff from uh, celebrities, just some kind of little nuggets of knowledge and wisdom uh, in the app as well. It's a $10 app on iTunes, but it does look like it's worth the investment, and Renee certainly thinks so. So thank you, Renee, for the recommendation. Link to that app is on our website. And then lastly, guys, we have a recommendation from Tom Burt. Uh, you've heard his name on the podcast several times, and he sent us a, uh, a stronger, I quote, stronger self-taping video which is actually from the Australian SAG-AFTRA equivalent, uh, the Media, Entertainment, and Arts Alliance. And it's a pretty solid video, just with some tips on self-taping as we kind of wrap up that uh, discussion there. So a link to that is on our website as well, which is a very, again, that's kind of a clear, uh, sort of concise few tips on how to self-tape effectively. Uh, as far as thank yous go, we have a, uh, a, a big shout out to Tiffany Bourne, who sent us a one-time uh, donation. Thank you so much, Tiffany, for making our world go round, you, literally. Um, thank you for your generous donation. And uh, make sure you hang on to your um, receipt, your email receipt, because you can write this off as an education expense. And then we also want to give a shout out to Jay Rose, who is our newest patron. Jay, send us a headshot, a blurb, and some links to your uh, websites, like your Twitter and your IMDb and stuff like that. And we'll throw it up on our patron page with all the other glorious people uh, that you guys should all go take a look at. Head over to our website and click on the patrons tab at the top to take a look at who is amazing and supporting us with their hard-earned dollars and cents every month. Speaking of patrons, our patron of the week is another longtime supporter, Jordan Carter. And Jordan has been uh, with us for, I want to say, years. And um, we actually don't have a headshot or bio for him yet. But I know he and I, I think he and I, have interacted on uh, on the web before on various social media. And I think, Jordan, correct me if I'm wrong if you're listening, are you the Foursquare guy? Have we connected on Foursquare in the past? Um, I don't know. Rem- sure. I think you also maybe go by Vince. Maybe I'm way off. It's hard to tell because we don't have a, a bio or anything for you. So send that on over. Just wanted to give you a little shout out and some love uh, and thank you for your ongoing support. Those of you who are interested in supporting the podcast, you know where to go. There are lots of ways to be in touch with and support us. Start at InsideActingPodcast.com. Uh, you can leave us a comment there. You can email us at insideactingpodcast at gmail.com. Call and leave us a voicemail at 213-2-ACTORS. That's 213-222-8677. You can find us on Twitter. We are Inside Acting on Twitter. We're on Facebook, also facebook.com slash insideacting. We have a Facebook group. We have an iOS app. We are on iTunes. We're on Actorated. And then last but not least, you can join the ranks of Jordan, Jay, and Renee Michelle Bernay by becoming a patron head over to our website click on the patron button or the donate button and uh choose a monthly uh amount to donate if you feel that uh this podcast has sufficiently benefited your journey and in, s- in such a way that you'd like to give back you can do that monthly recurring donation or you know what you can say screw it guys i just want to send you a couple bucks and be done with it and that is totally amazing too so uh go ahead and and, uh, and do that now please and uh know that it goes a long way and that uh, we'll be giving you a shout out on an upcoming episode. All right. That is enough of my voice in your ears for this week. So 
Thanks very much to Jen, our production coordinator, Cesar Gamino, our technical producer, Gdali Guberek, our marketing and web director, and our newest team member and patron, Deborah Smith, who is heading up a really exciting initiative for us, and she's really just shouldering uh, quite a bit of work to make this happen. So lots of exciting stuff coming up, guys. If you're not on our mailing list yet, please head over to our website and sign up to get uh, to kind of stay in the know about the latest good stuff coming coming down the pipe. All right, for episode 152, my name is Trevor Algott. We'll see you guys next week. This episode of Inside Acting has been brought to you in part by VO2GoGo.com, the award-winning voiceover training system and winner of Backstage's Reader's Choice Award for Best VO Training four years in a row. Visit VO2GoGo.com slash start for a free getting started in voiceover online class that will help you add voiceover to your acting portfolio. That's VO2GoGo.com slash start.